Hello, I'm Douglas Murray, and welcome to Uncancelled History. Today, colonialism. I'm joined by Professor Bruce Gilley. Bruce Gilley is Professor of Political Science at Portland State University. His research focuses on topics including colonialism and Asian politics. In 2018, he published an article, The Case for Colonialism, which was first published in the Third World Quarterly. It sparked enormous protests and nearly half of the journal's editorial board resigned in protest. The author of numerous articles and books, in 2021, Gilly published his biography of Sir Alan Burns, a 20th century British colonial officer. Today, on Uncancelled History, Colonialism. First of all, thank you so much, Bruce, for joining me. Um, in recent years, colonialism has been shown to be portrayed as one of the absolutely foundational sins of the West, perhaps along with slavery, racism. Colonialism is the one that has been most zoomed in on. Um, what is colonialism, first of all? Well, I think if we take the biggest view, colonialism or imperialism, as it used to be called before that became a dirty word too, is simply where one group of people with an established uh, form of government uh, travels to a part of the world where their government doesn't currently rule and establishes its rule there. Um, and by that definition, um, all of world history is a history of imperialism and colonialism. There is there is no people or no country today that has not at some point been involved in imperialism and colonialism. So nothing specifically unique or different about Europeans doing exactly what everyone else did. Um, when people hear the term colonialism now, they zoom in on a very specific and... Um, and small portion of the world of colonialism, which is basically 19th century and early 20th century European mm. colonialism in what we now call the third world. Certainly in modern academia and perhaps the wider culture, um, 18th and 19th century European colonialism is now, is now seen as being a sort of shorthand for something that is unadulteratedly cruel, entirely racist. Uh, what about this analysis, in your view, falls short? Well, uh, in part because uh, it's either true by definition uh, or it's patently false. Um, mm. True by definition because every group up until very recently was inherently racist towards other groups. Uh, the Cherokees of the Americas were racist towards other Native Americans. The Bantu were racist towards all of the black African tribes they conquered as they imperialized Southern Africa. Uh, the Maori were racist towards other Pacific Asian tribes. I mean, everyone was a racist. If by that term we mean the assumptions by Group A that the members of Group B are inferior and deserve to be conquered if they can be, that's a universal human hmm. phenomena. And it arises from evolutionary needs for basically in-group solidarity. So hmm. racism is the standard default position for all peoples. So. To say that the Europeans were racist is just to state the obvious, uh, because all peoples were racist. If it's not a statement of the obvious, then it's patently false. And by that I mean that if we were to judge the racism of the Europeans vis-a-vis -vis the places they conquered, 
compared to the racism of other groups at the time, we'd find the Europeans much less racist. And, and if we were going to put it on a spectrum, we would say the only anti-racists in the whole world at the time of European colonialism were the Europeans, because they were the ones who went abroad and said, these peoples have the capacity to be just like us. These people deserve freedoms. These people deserve to be freed from slavery. They deserve to be developed. They deserve to be civilized, which of course is seen as a sort of great racist act, but it's quite the opposite. It's the act of saying, all peoples have the potential to be self-governing, to be flourishing, to have a written language, history, arts, and culture. This was the great anti-racist campaign that European colonialism represented. So that's why I say it's either simply a statement of the obvious, Hmm. Or it's patently false. Roughly, what what were other people at the time thinking? But you, you mentioned, you know, these were attitudes that Europeans held. But what would have been more normal attitudes at the time for the rest of the world about other groups? Well, the, the rest of the world, and this is true, um, well into the twentieth century, right? Basically, that uh, different groups saw themselves based on their ability to spread their rule and their culture and their institutions to others. And they were more superior the more they were able to do that. So this is why the Bantu expansion into southern Africa, uh, the Buganda expansion throughout East Africa, the Fulani slave empire of West Africa, all of these groups saw themselves as inferior and saw those they conquered as not just moral inferiors, but somehow subhuman in the mm. sense that this, they, they, weren't, they weren't engaged in a civilizing action. They were engaged in a, a simple conquest, right? Yeah. And, and this is this this was this was real racism in the sense of denying the humanity of those who were put under the subjugation, which is why these empires often were slave empires or mm. simply simply genocidal empires. The Europeans were different, right? Not entirely. They had their brutal aspects, they had their old imperialist conquest aspects, but the the seed of the difference in the European case was this idea of civilization. Civilization raises those that you conquer from the level of subhuman to being human. Because mm -hmm. why would you civilize farm animals? There is no need to civilize farm animals. You civilize people who you take to be your moral equals. Now, in 2017, you caused something of an uproar. Um, you wrote a piece called The Case for Colonialism, uh, in which you made the claim that European colonialism was indeed uh, beneficial to colonized people. Um, can you tell us something about the, the backlash of attacks? Uh, what, what you said in that article, what happened as a result of it? Um, because this, this, was, um, this was a proper firestorm in your area. This was. Um, I wrote the article of 2017, The Case for Colonialism, because I was starting work on my biography of Sir Alan Burns, great British colonial administrator, which became the last imperialist. And I was trying to frame the basic case for colonialism that his life represented and he articulated. And it went through peer review, got a split decision. The editor decided to run it, kind of thinking it might be a good debate. And literally within minutes of it appearing online, there were two online petitions started, one by a um, interpretive dance instructor in Britain and one by an English professor in Manitoba and a third by a uh, professor in Syracuse University who also wanted my PhD revoked. So three petitions actually, um, which eventually had about 30,000 signatures demanding the article be retracted, saying that this was violence against brown and black people, saying that this was Holocaust denial, saying that this was a threat to the safety of my students. Um, so my university launched a diversity investigation claiming my article was uh, an act of violence. 
Eventually, the editorial staff in London had death threats from nationalists in India. They asked me, could they please withdraw the article? I said, of course, not a big deal to me. Their safety was paramount. Um, it was reprinted in Academic Questions, which is the House Journal of the National Association of Scholars. And I think thanks to the firestorm has attracted far more attention than it would have attracted if it had simply been allowed to be read and disputed. The, the original journal that it was published in, then unpublished in, uh, just decided to pretend it hadn't happened, or...? So this is the Third World Quarterly. No, they, they, uh, they did things by the book. They were not allowed to w retract an article because of a political firestorm, according to the Ethics Commission of the UK, which actually is stronger than the Ethics Commission in the US for publishing. Um, so they had to ask my request to yeah. withdraw it, not retract it, which I agreed to for their physical safety. So it was withdrawn, not retracted. So if you go to the website today, you'll see the withdrawal notice that states very clearly that they face death threats. And the funny thing is now the Third World Quarterly has allowed, now that all their editorial staff has been revamped with ultra-woke academics, they're allowing their authors to cite the article again, but they're only citing the withdrawal notice. They're not citing mm. the actual article, but mm. they're trying to kind of, mm. kind of piggyback on the popularity of the article to generate right. metrics for their journal, but you can't actually read the article on uh, By the way, the, the, uh, so there are three petitions against you, including the interpretive dance lady. Uh, and she didn't presumably make her objection through the form of interpretive dance, did she? No, she used um, the, the method of a petition. And you might say, well, okay, it's a free world. And I do believe this. I think if you want to set up a petition and oppose something, you know, be my guest. Mm. What, what was, I think, shocking to me was how many people signed that petition who were credentialed, Mm. academics holding positions in right. universities in the UK and Canada and Australia and the United States, universities which are by their very principles committed to the principle of academic freedom. Mm. And so you have, I mean, okay, people sign petitions, but academics standing up very publicly and saying, I don't think this article deserves to be written. I think mm. academic freedom has certain limitations. And when people say things that I think are racist or white supremacist, um, academic freedom has reached its limits. It seemed to me that, that, that with that article, you, you had undoubtedly uh, hit a tripwire uh, in our day. And the way I sort of thought of it in a way was perhaps there would have been a time maybe 100 years ago where to write, I mean, this isn't particularly the case, but to write only negative things about colonialism and everybody involved in colonial projects would have caused some kind of problem. And that what had happened is that in our own day, to say actually the picture's a bit more nuanced, a bit more rounded, is just unacceptable. It has to be that colonialism is like the Holocaust, as one of your uh, accusers said, uh, that it's, it's just there is no context, it's just bad. It, it, it's something like that, isn't it? There's just a unanimity that there's no texture to be added, that if somebody like you or Professor Nigel Bigger at Oxford says, hang on, it's a bit more complicated, effectively you're seen as being an apologist for the worst excesses of colonialism. So I actually think not, um, because I think this idea that there was a time in European history or British history when it was nothing but daring do mm. glorification of, of colonialism and the empire is a myth. Mm. There was never a time in British history, in British education, in British newspapers, 
where the imperial enterprise, where the colonies, whether we're talking the, the American colonies, uh, Australia, or later Africa, where this was not subject to a constant debate, mm. and where people who were critical of this were very free and very prolific mm. in writing their criticism. So I think mm. this, you get this kind of um, this narrative, especially in the UK, that, well, at least we're not back in the days when it's all celebration of the empire. Right. And there was never a time in British mm. history where there was nothing but glorification and celebration of Where empire. do you think that idea comes from, though? I, 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 th I think it's because the people think that they have a balanced perspective. And by being balanced, they try to set up this idea that, well, I'm not like those crazy old imperialists like mm. that old day. I think we need balance. And so I'm not on the right side of the spectrum. I'm a centrist. In fact, there was never that that perspective. So I think they're trying to make themselves feel like they're the centrists in the mm. issue. Whereas, in fact, the arguments have always been about the, the critical and the, the contentious rollout of empire and what was happening. And so anti-colonialism didn't arise in response to some, some excessively positive account of empire that was dominating and that was hegemonic in the empire. It didn't, right? Because that's its false flag. It basically argues against a straw man, right? Mm. There was never that. And so what, it, what, what, it, what the anti-colonialists are, are trying to do is to suggest that they're just bringing balance to the argument, right? Mm. But they're not, right? In fact, what they're doing is disbalancing the argument entirely, taking it from mm. what it used to be, which is you could, you could say the case for colonialism or the case against colonialism, and shut down the case for colonialism, say there's only one case to be made. Anti-colonialism right. anti is the only case to be made. Uh, and what um, you, Professor Nigel Bigger, a very small number of other academics have been doing is to be inserting this information into the debate, facts, uh, um, interpretations of it, which, which seem just not to have been put in for a very long time, certainly not in the academic field. Um, so you mentioned I mean, there, are, there are sort of positives about colonialism, there are, there are negatives. What were the positives, in your view, for peoples in the countries that Europeans went to and ruled? Well, I think we need to start at a very high level of abstraction because the, the, the fundamental thing is this, is if you were in a society which had um, a Stone Age level of technological development, had no fixed borders, had no institutionalized system of governance, um, had not yet discovered the wheel, um, or in some more advanced places, nonetheless, still lived in an essentially feudal system, right? With, an, with a, an, um, a very uh, entrenched elite and a very impoverished population. And you had the opportunity to be ruled by an advanced European civilization, right? Why would you not want that to happen, right? So just at the level of abstraction, like civilization A, which is superior to civilization B, and I have no problems using the term superior. I was going to say, lots, lots of people, the moment you say superior, they're going to... Absolutely superior, right? Because superior in the sense of better technology, better healthcare, better education, more accountable governance, more rights for marginalized communities, especially women, um, uh, urban development, um, technology, transportation, um, life-saving research and science, right? Those are the things I mean. This is superior, right? And there's no objective definition, distinction between that and what's less. If you had that opportunity, what would your society do? Of course, they would, they would jump at the opportunity, which is why so much of European imperialism spread with as much pull 
as it did push, right? Mm. Indeed, the pull factors are often the dominating ones. The British were, were uh, went to Ghana. They said not much interested. Left the Ghanaian kings the demanded that they come back, begged them to come back. Finally, they did sign the treaties. Why? Because British Empire or other empires brought security. It brought stability. It brought opportunities. It brought an end to intertribal warfare, which in many cases these kings and these tribal leaders recognized was destroying their societies, mm. right? They needed essentially a hegemon. I mean, it's, it's an old Hobbesian story, but that's what they needed. So, you know, the, at a very high level of abstraction, right, I think that the onus of proof is that colonialism didn't bring tremendous benefits, right? I mean, just in, in the sense of the logic of a more superior, I mean, you don't have to use superior, more developed, right? More advanced civilization, having an opportunity to rule a less advanced civilization is so patently obvious, right? That the burden of proof that this was not a good thing, I think lies upon those who say this was, this, this somehow brought, brought harms. And I think that's where we then have to get into, okay, what would, so it's a good idea in general, right? Is, was it a good idea in practice, right? Now, mm. this is where we need to, to talk about like how it rolled out. Places were better, places were worse. There were abuses here, not here. I mean, now we get into mm. what used to be the debate on colonialism, mm. which, is, which is let's talk about the practical opportunities, feasibility of things, things that were done well, things were done badly in particular contexts. But, but you know, this idea of a blanket condemnation mm. is just not tenable. I suppose there's two things that the uh, anti-colonialists say at this point, which is, uh, first of all, there are, yes, that there are maybe technical advances and so on, but that two things occur with colonialism. One is, one is the presumption that there are people who are sort of morally better going into less morally developed societies. And the other one would be something along the lines of uh, you're instituting a form of inequality and along the lines of that, you're also, along the way, you're also, for instance, um, eradicating local cultures, uh, local norms. You're replacing local norms with European norms. What do, you, what do you say to those claims? All of them don't withstand scrutiny. Um, again, the idea of, of a moral superiority is one thing that was distinctly absent in the European mission. If you take the idea of the, the, the civilizing mission seriously, right, what it implies is the moral potential, right, of mm. those you are colonizing to be exactly like you. That was very explicit, right? And in terms of, of um, life-saving medicines being morally superior to the absence of life-saving medicines, yeah, I have no problems going to the mat and saying that's morally superior. It's morally superior to save lives to, to uh, prevent people from being killed through violent conflicts, to give rights to people who are traditionally marginalized, that's morally superior. I have no problem with that. Most liberals would argue that too, except when you talk about it in the context of colonialism. Mm. Second of all, in terms of, of foreign norms or alien norms, don't forget, almost all the places that were colonized were already under alien rule. But it was indigenous alien rule, not mm. European alien rule. And we're talking mainly here about Africa. Well, you know, most places. I mean, I mean, look at um, look at the Malay Peninsula, right? I mean, basically, uh, the Malay Peninsula was a was a was a bunch of small fiefdoms, small sultanates, right? Those sultanates expanded or contracted based upon their power, right, and brought in people who had been under another sultanate. So, I mean, the idea of like indigenous rule? I mean, what is indigenous rule in a context in which the world has always been organized by mm. empires spreading as far as they can, and when they weaken, 
being subjugated by other empires. Mm. Uh, it is, you're right, most explicitly clear in, in Africa because you can actually see what was happening at the time of European conquest. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Fulani slave empire, which was basically an Islamic caliphate of the north, central part of the Sahara, was spreading towards West Africa when the British came in. The reason why it was so easy for the British to establish their control in northern Nigeria was because those groups recognized the choice was British imperialism or the Fulani slave empire. Mm. And the British empire started to look very attractive compared to that. Third point, destroying local cultures. Hmm. European imperialism was famous for its discovery and documentation and celebration of local cultures. Many of these languages would not have survived had not the, hmm. the usually not the colonial administrators, but the explorers and the linguists and academics and researchers who came with imperialism gone and documented those languages. Right. I mean, the, the, the U language of Togo, um, was essentially rescued by the Germans after they colonized it. And there was two or three German linguists who went out, documented those languages before they were lost, mm -hmm. created dictionaries, created um, study guides. I mean, the, the entire language would not exist but for German colonialism. It's the same with James Princip and the language in India. Right, yeah, the, the, British, the British rediscovery of Indian heritage is well known, right? I mean, I'm, I don't need to document it, but... but, but but the, the Asiatics and the Orientalists, right, were the ones who rescued and saved these cultures from destruction either by an indigenous empire or just by the forces of modernization, right? That, that they, yeah. Like Swahili was spreading in East Africa. It was going to be the hegemonic language. If the Germans had not documented those languages in the Mount Kilimanjaro area, those languages would have been lost. There, there, there is a sort of presumption, I think. We, we've come across it in a number of cases. This presumption that if the if the Westerners, if the Europeans get, go into a place, they bring certain evils into an effectively Edenic society, uh, that the locals are um, otherwise living unbothered by modernity, by the vices of humankind. Um, obviously, this wasn't the case, uh, but it seems that people are very reluctant to recognize that there's a balance of things going on here, at the very least. Yeah, well, not only that the pre-colonial societies were not the Garden of Eden, far from it, um, and had any of those pre-colonial societies been literate or had record-keeping traditions, we would have more information on that. We don't. Mm. So what do you turn to? You turn to the civilization that produced records and newspaper articles and parliamentary inquiries and academic researches and whatnot, which is the European civilization. So there's a I mean, just the knowledge base is hugely biased towards the European colonial experience. And in mm. particular, because it comes with a self-critical tradition, a lot of that knowledge is critical. Mm. So this is somehow evidence that it was the Garden of Eden before European colonialism is clearly not the case. Secondly, quite aside from that, the, the, the more significant question is, okay, absent the European, if the Europeans had said, right, we're not, we're not going into Africa, we're gonna have this kind of agreement among ourselves not to go in. So what would have happened? Well. Trade is still going to happen. Missionaries are still going to go in there. Mm. Alcohol is going to go in there. The Maxim machine gun is going to go in there. Um, so, so what you get then is a kind of, uh, kind of Yahoo explorers and claim stakers among the Europeans allying themselves with local forces. Would that have been a better governing experience for Africa? Mm. So, the, so, 
So living in splendid isolation is not an option for Africa mm. or the Middle East or Southeast Asia or the Pacific at this time, right? Globalization is happening. Do you want globalization to be governed or do you want it to be ungoverned, right? And the ungoverned bits and pieces we have, such as the Congo Free State, right, which actually you know, was relatively well governed compared to some of the worst ones, but the, but the, but the private co colonies, right. And Liberia under the Firestone company and some of the, um, the, the German trading companies in the Pacific, obviously the East India company before the, the mutiny. I mean, these private colonialisms did not acquit themselves very well. Right. Mm. So that's the alternative, right? The alternative is not splendid isolation. The alternative is kind of these, these freelancers and mercenaries running these places, which mm. tended to be much worse because there's no accountability. Now, in 2020, you published your mm. biography of Sir Alan Burns, the last imperialist. Um, uh, first of all, um, before we get into the controversies around that, um, perhaps you could explain who was Alan Burns and, and why, why was he somebody you wanted to write about? Burns uh, was a colonial administrator born in the Caribbean. Um, went to West Africa on the eve of World War One, fought in the West Africa campaigns in the Cameroons and <clears throat> in Togo, was uh, then put on the Nigerian government, became a colonial secretary in the Bahamas, became the governor of Belize, or what was then the British Honduras, eventually became the governor of the Gold Coast, which is now Ghana during World War II. And then after that, a very kind of storied colonial career was sent to the United Nations in the 50s to basically stand up for the British Empire when the United Nations was becoming a kind of decolonization machine, right? Mm. What interested me about Burns was he was an unapologetic defender of empire way into the 20th century. Yes, he, right? dies in 19... he dies in 1980, right? So, so his, he is one of the few people who carries on the case for colonialism well after most British have kind of retired in a kind of awkward, cringy feeling about, well, that, that wasn't very nice, but as long as I have my pension. And, and of course, the 60s is the era of the great radical anti-colonial movements, mm. not in the global system, not only in the global system, but on, on campus, of course. And Burns is pushing the argument right to the end, right? And presently enough, because he lives through the 70s, which is the great lost decade in the developing world, right? Where massacres and wars and humanitarian mm. catastrophes that, that we didn't notice because there's no white men involved. But I mean, this was the great lost decade of the third world. Where are we talking about here? Oh, we're talking about all of Africa, essentially. Uh, we're talking about Indonesia. Um, we're talking about um, the, the period of, of, of conflict in the Middle East. We're talking about India itself, the great like granddaddy of them all, right? With stagnation, with communal violence, with an emergency and a suspension of democracy. Um, Basically, every part of the third world is falling apart and going into spiral in the 70s, right? And it slowly starts to recover by the 80s. But Burns is paying attention to this, right? Burns is paying attention to the, the, the massacres, the, the Biafra War, right, is maybe the one mm. that draws world attention because yeah. we're talking one to two million people killed in that. Uh, of course, partition might have caused some... some misgivings about this whole decolonization idea. Um, but Burns is kind of arguing the case. This is why we shouldn't have ended it so fast. This is why the United Nations um, mishandled this whole issue, right? They were so obsessed with getting the colonialists out 
that they didn't pay attention to what was going to take over and who was going to fill the power vacuum and were these going to be stable states. Um, so I wrote the biography because I found him a, a compelling figure. I also tracked down his family. There were all his papers sitting in an attic in, in Chelmsford. And, you know, classic kind of British thing. I mean, here's the guy who, in my mind, is, is one of the great, greatest generation of the late colonial administrators who are helping to get these countries ready for independence. And he's just kind of treated with this icy coldness. Um, and there's this paper sitting in an attic in Chelmsford, you know, because you wouldn't want to write about this person, right? I mean, what a, mm. what an evil person this is. And yet he is a, a great, I mean, he's a hero of the British people, in my mind. But mm. the British were not interested in it. By the way, before we come back to Burns, one of the things that always interested me about the post-colonial period, it, uh, the number of post-colonial writers who say um, there is a form of Western colonialism that these countries, particularly in Africa, have had to suffer under, and that they must be returned to another state. Now, the, the obvious thing, seems to me, is that you would argue that they should be returned to some pre-colonial state. But that argument seems to be quite uncommon. A lot of the people, I'm thinking of writers like Franz Fanon and others, once the anti-colonialist movement gets going, argue for Marxism for these societies. In other words, they say Western imperialism has been the problem and that we must therefore return these societies and we must return them to Western Marxism. And there was always something, there was always something specifically political going on that era as well, wasn't it? Because we're talking about the 60s, we're talking about still dreams of Marxism going on. And it seemed that like the post-colonial developing world could always be used as another experimenting place for that. Right. So the great myth of anti-colonialism is that it represented indigenous forces and indigenous resistance to colonialism. And it didn't. It represented European intellectuals exporting mm -hmm. their ideologies to hapless brown and black people yeah. and finding people like Fanon or Amical Cabral who spent most of their time hanging out in cafes in Paris and Lisbon mm -hmm. and sending them back as representatives of the people oppressed black people who needed to lead the fight against colonialism. But these people didn't represent anything in their societies. They barely had traveled. Most of them couldn't speak the languages of their own societies. What they brought back was not some indigenous response to colonialism. What they brought back was a bunch of half-assed ideologies mm -hmm. from Europe. Most of them Marxist or Leninist or vaguely postmodernist as Fanon was. And what's interesting in terms of this decolonization process is the indigenous leaders in these societies saw that, right? Mm. They said to the Europeans, don't you dare hand over power to these people, right? This was the, the, the great, the great uh, king of the Congo who was saying to the Belgians, this guy, Patrice Lumumba, right, is a madman, right? Don't give in to them. Don't promise independence. Don't hand mm. over to these people because they're a bunch of loudmouths. And they're the minority, right? We, we, we need you to stay, right? We're not ready for independence. Right. Even Julius Nyerere, who became the, the first prime minister of Tanzania and then president of Tanzania, was very explicit when he went to the United Nations and said, we're being pushed towards independence way faster than we'll be ready for it. Julius Nyerere didn't think Tanzania would be ready to, for independence until about the year 2000, right? But the momentum was... You, you have to resist colonialism. You have to, you have to go. And so these, these people who had 
no ability to hold these countries together. And we're bringing in not some indigenous wisdom of governance, but half-baked Marxist theories were thrown into power as representatives of the people against European colonialism. And this was because there was a perception of the winds of change. There was a, just a historic moment. There was no point resisting it. it. It's two things. First of all, Europe is exhausted after World War II. And, you know, European populations are lining up for bread. They have no heating. They have no electricity. Um, the, the appetite for providing global public goods to foreign peoples was was at an end, right? Mm. And that's one of the one of the tragedies of World War One, World War Two, was this loss of European willpower to to maintain empires, right? So, so first of all, there's a there's no support for colonialism on the home front. That's the most fundamental reason for the end of colonialism. It's not Gandhi standing up to the British Empire, you know, these these virtuous George Washingtons with black skin bringing down the pretensions of this strong imperialist. No nonsense. The imperialists were brought, brought, brought down by the home front who said, we're done with colonialism. We, we can barely feed our families, right? And so the, the willpower on the home front evaporated. Later on top of that, you now have the Soviet Union styling itself as the liberator of black and brown people everywhere, even as it's colonizing Central Asia, Eastern mm -hmm. Europe, the Baltics. But anyways, put that aside, they're liberators. And of course, they'll bring democracy and prosperity everywhere they go. Well, now at the United Nations, you have this dance of the Soviet Union and the United States, the United States having its anti-colonial tradition, but recognizing that this is not going to end well, but not wanting to be outflanked by the Americans mm -hmm. for, the, for, the, for, the, for the participation of these third world governments. So loss of resources on the home front, United Nations system pushing for decolonization. Mm -hmm. It's an open door. Don't tell me that, that Gandhi brought down the British Empire. I mean, he's a, he's a complete flinty, silly man. He's pushing on an open door, right? right? And these doors open up very quickly and with grave consequences for these populations. Now, just to stick with Burns for a second, when your biography of Burns came out, you were um, attacked from some perhaps predictable quarters for it. Um, uh, one uh, Marxist uh, philosopher claimed that you were endorsing a white nationalist perspective. Um, what, what do you say to people like that, people who, who claim you're doing something wrong by just even writing about a figure like Alan Burns? Yeah, I think the criticism was that I was, uh, I was enabling white supremacy by writing a positive biography of a British colonial official. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't know where to start, because, in part because one of the things that attracted me to Burns is how much he was loved mm. among those where he governed, right? I mean, he was, a, he was called the sunshine governor in the Gold Coast, right? They, um, they constantly told him that they wanted to extend his term and not just the kind of local elites, right? But I mean, he always would tell the story about, you know, he would go off on safari to visit some hill station and the only person he would have with him would be his orderly. Why? Because mm. the British officials were never afraid of being murdered. They were never afraid of being attacked. They were always welcomed wherever they went, right? So, so this supposedly evil person but now we need a white Marxist in Toronto to tell these stupid brown and black people who kept liking people like Burns that they were mistaken and they really needed to get their marching orders from white academics and philosophers in Western universities. I mean, to me, this is the real racism, right? The real racism is these white academics 
who tell brown and black people what they are and are not allowed to think about their own histories mm. and what they should and should not think about those histories, right? I mean, this is, um, I mean, I think it's uh, Dr. Najoya, uh, Wanjiro Najoya, um, British legal professor, right, who says this is the real imperialism, right? The real mm. imperialism is these white academics trying to tell people in the former colonies what they are and are not allowed to think about their own histories. Um, are there ways to ensure that academics like yourself who do write about this are um, able to do so without being um, assailed in this way? I mean, there's, there's fair criticism. Of course, nobody ever wants to stop that. But the, the sort of, um, let's say, the demonization that's been seen uh, against you, against Nigel Bigger at Oxford, is saying that you know, maybe we could try to look at uh, colonialism in the round. Is there any way to protect academics to be able to continue such research without that kind of uh, No, I think, I think right now, if you're a young scholar or a young historian and you look at me, um, the, the implications are very clear, right? Mm. Don't, you, you will not get a job, especially as a white academic, uh, unless you are more woke than the woke, right? Mm. And you need to be so virulently anti-colonial. You need to be practically insanely anti-colonial in order to even have a a thought of getting a job in academia. So no, the the, the window has, clo has closed very narrowly and it's about to close even more firmly shut. So that's one thing. So my, my argument to the, to the academy is something like this. If you were to produce a vaccine in a laboratory filled with bacteria and all sorts of unhygienic conditions, would you trust that vaccine in your patients? The argument would be no, right? Producing anti-colonial history in an environment in which only anti-colonial history is allowed is essentially the equivalent of producing a tainted vaccine. There's no scientific reason to believe that that history is accurate because it's been produced in a laboratory that doesn't have adequate scientific conditions. Mm. And the most fundamental scientific condition for any social scientific claim or historical claim is the possibility of dissent, the possibility mm. of debate, the possibility of different perspective being raised. And if you shut that down, everything you produce is by definition flawed, right? right? So I don't even need to read it. I just need to say it's produced in the modern academy. It's, it's, not, it's not reliable right. without reading a single word of it, just knowing the, the conditions of knowledge production, right, in the in academic setting are are so flawed, right, and so 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 tainted, that it it would only be by fluke that it would produce anything of value. Now, um, one of the ways in which people talk, do talk about colonialism now is um, they they do allow themselves to say effectively there were there were worse empires. Um, if there's an agreement that that none none were good, it was all wrong, but that there were some that were worse. And uh, speaking as somebody born in Britain, I can say that. That, that even the most anti-colonial movements in Britain uh, do, co do concede or console themselves with the idea that the Belgians were the worst. Uh, I don't know why this gives us so much pleasure, but it does. Um, uh, the one thing everyone knows in Britain is that King Leopold did the worst stuff, and at least we didn't have King Leopold. Um, let's just get on to that quickly. I mean, first of all, this perception that there were better and worse empires. Is it true? No, no, it's not. And I think um, that the British actually are uh, probably one of the worst. And here's the reason, is that the worst empires or the worst in 
the conceding this. The worst of the empires. Huh. Yeah, yeah. But I think the British are actually quite good. So I think I think they're all good. I just think, and the reason is this: is that empires tended to take the easiest and the best stuff first, right? The British captured what was the most easy to govern and the most um, easily uh, governed areas first. And the latecomers tended to get the worst stuff, right? So the reason the Portuguese get such a bad rap is when, by the time the Portuguese were coming to colonize the, the African areas, and that was about the only thing they had, they were left with the bits and pieces, the places no one else wanted to govern, right? Mm. The same is true of the Congo. Now, a couple things about the Congo. First of all, the Congo Free State of King Leopold II was not a Belgian colony. And I have to always remind people of that. It was not a Belgian colony. So it was a private estate of King Leopold II. It was not run by the Belgian government. The information was not shared with the Belgian government. There were no Belgian government officials there. It was a private undertaking by the king lasted until 1908. The Congo became a Belgian colony in 1908 after the problems and abuses of the Free State were revealed. And from 1908 until its independence in 1960 was the only time the Congo has been well governed. So that Belgians actually have a lot to be proud of for their colonial period in the Congo, which began in 1908. The other places were Rwanda and Burundi, now Burundi, right? Which the Belgians were given as their spoils from World War I from German East Africa. Also, very successful governance in Rwanda and Burundi in terms of allowing essentially these, these feudal states to remain in rule. The Belgians recognized the problems, but were forced out by the United Nations system because these were trusteeships. These weren't colonies per se. These were UN trusteeships that the Belgians ran. The Belgians realized what would happen if sudden independence was given to them. Again, UN system comes in. So I look at the Belgian experiences in those three places and say it's a tremendous achievement for the Belgians. Um, and it's just one of these myths of the even e evil Belgians. But pre-1908, it was... Yeah, but pre-1908, it's not a colony, right? It's basically a private estate run by a bunch of freelancers, a bunch of military cast-offs. And, you know, Leopold's... I mean, Leopold's argument for, for the... And, and by the way, all the... The Adam Hothschild's book is, mm -hmm. a, is, a, is a farrago of nonsense and misinterpretation. I'm writing a long takedown of it for its 25th anniversary next year. Mm. I mean... Is this King Leopold's go? Yes, yeah. 10 million dead. Nonsense. Uh, even as a mortality demographic decline figure, the 10 million is nonsense. Probably the best estimate is the population increased slightly under King Leopold's rule. No 10 million dead, no 10 million murdered, right? Which you'll see on Wikipedia. So it's just a lie, right? A bald lie. And it's a lie that Hochschild was aware of when he published the book and he chose not to include it, right? It's basically the demographers who were looking at that. They realized that the, mis the miscalculation, Hochschild was aware that that was a lie. He didn't change the book, right? And he's never recanted it, right? So it's a big, it's a big scandal to me. Mm. The popularity of that book is a scandal. Second of all, because... Hochschild subtitles that book, A Story of Greed and Terror in Colonial Africa. Well, okay, Colonial Africa, yes, but not in a colony. This was not a colony, right? This was a, this was a freelance enterprise being run. And what made the Congo so difficult for King Leopold was the fact that most of the center area was controlled by two notoriously brutal slave and rubber empires um, who, who, were, who were Muslim... Africans, sometimes called Arabs, but they were actually both Africans, who had 
traditionally traded from the East End. One was called Tipo Tip, mm. who was famous for his brutality. The other was called Al Zuber Matir, who was these two competing kind of chiefdoms of the East End. And most of the brutalities happened in those areas. Now, yes, this was formally part of the Free State. And in theory, the king should have had a stronger military force to stamp that out. I mean, this is why the mm. private colonialism didn't work well, because you don't have the resources, you don't have the security operations, you don't have the accountability mechanisms. But keep in mind what we're saying here. What we're saying is the Free State didn't have enough colonialism. Mm. And what most people will say is colonialism caused the Free State. No, it was the absence of colonialism that caused the Free State. In fact, Edmund Morrell, the famous lawyer who exposed the abuses, right? I mean, his whole argument was this place needs to be colonized. Mm. And he wanted the Germans to take it over, right? Because he thought the Germans were the best colonizers. So, I mean, the mythology of this, this evil Belgian colony is A, wrong, because there wasn't a Belgian colony. B, it misinterprets the problem as being too much colonialism when the problem was too little. Uh, just shoot down one more of my British uh, consolations. Uh, the Italians were especially bad. Well, the fascist colony of Italian Abyssinia is, is a bit of an, an oxymoron because of what is a fascist colony exactly? I mean, it's not a European colony in the sense of bringing European liberal civilization to Africa in that case. I mean, Mussolini said, I'm going to oust this Christian king and replace him with a Muslim Islamic state, and I'm going to be the sword of Islam in Abyssinia. So he was wildly popular, but he was popular because he was doing everything that European colonialism didn't do, which was bring a liberal empire to, to Africa. I mean, he was explicit in saying, I'm going to build a Islamo-fascist empire here, right? I mean, so he was celebrated. I mean, the Saudis and the Egyptians loved the Italian conquest of Abyssinia. A, it overthrew a Christian king, so that was good, <clears throat> replaced it with an Islamic empire. B, he promised to impose Sharia law, right? Mm -hmm. And so that made him popular. So is that colonialism or is that fascism, right? I mean, for mm -hmm. me, colonialism as we describe it is European liberal states expanding liberal governance to Africa. Mussolini's colony was really just an Islamo-fascist outpost. And when the people who visited there saw that, you know, they recoiled and they recognized that this is not, this is not some, some, some Italian colony, right? This doesn't represent Italian mm. values. It represents Mussolini's fascism. Now, uh, come, coming more up to date, the, mm. uh, in the discussion today about colonialism, you seem to have a situation where some countries are, uh, insist that, for instance, reparations need to be paid for colonialism. Uh, there must be large cash transfers, sometimes to the Swiss bank account of the relevant leader. Um, that, that, that some kind of um, compensation must be made. One of the things that's very striking to me about this argument is that that argument is only heard, of course, from states that have not worked well after the period of colonial rule. Um, whereas states, countries which have boomed in the last half century are looking forward in this way. Is, is that true? Is it the case that now we hear about the, the crimes of colonialism most from just the places that just haven't worked for various reasons, you know, misgovernment, misgovernance, uh, corruption and much more. There, there's a reason why Zimbabwe is Zimbabwe and um, 
Singapore is Singapore. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and let's face it, nobody takes reparations seriously other than a kind of shakedown and a kind of foreign aid dressed up with a moral cause. The uh, United Nations takes it seriously. Yeah, I know. But, but let's be honest. I mean, so where you have seen payments, right, is in alleged response to the victims of counterinsurgency operations. Like so, the Mau Mau. The Mau Mau and in Namibia, right, to the Herero and the Nama. Although in the case of the Herero and the Nama, right, it was basically a payoff to the government, and the government is run by the Ovamambu, who are not Herero or Nama, and so there's a, a big internal debate about where that money's going to end up. It's going to end up in party cadres' you mean, so pockets in Namibia. People who were not the perpetrators gave money to people who weren't the victims. Right. Well, the Germans, the Germans handed over God knows how much, $4 billion or something, uh, $400 million mm. or whatever it was last year or two years ago to Namibia in reparation for the alleged genocide of the Herero, which is a myth, by the way, which I'm going to document in my forthcoming book on German colonialism called In Defense of German Colonialism. Um, but... <laughs> What, I see another attempted cancellation. Yeah, up. well, yeah. luckily, it's, it's, the publisher is not to be canceled. Um, but what I will say is there is a kind of just shakedown culture, right? And, this is a, and, it's, and they've become kind of like cargo cults, right? Basically, mm -hmm. like, let's, you know, really, uh, why not try and shake down the former colonial power with some, for some guilt money and spend our time in Berlin or Paris or London uh, angling for legal compensation and being in the court cases? Because ultimately... If they ever give in, right, it's just like a bonanza, right? Yeah. I mean, suddenly this, this free money comes in. And the Europeans being, ultimately, they don't really care about brown or black people. They care more about their moral, moral guilt and their, their self-absorption and the ability to achieve moral transcendence and ultimately superiority through their guilt, you know, don't really care that dropping large wads of cash into communities is extremely harmful to their productive capacities, mm -hmm. creates all kinds of malign impacts, but they don't really care about that. So the Germans dropped this big wad of cash on the, on the Namibian government two years ago, saying that, that's it, now we're done, right? Now we've atoned for our sins, right? Sets off a mad scramble, as you suggest, among the cadres for who's gonna get this money, mm -hmm. doesn't achieve anything. That's the only form of reparations that actually works now, which is identifying a clear set of alleged victims and a particular incident, right, in mm -hmm. which a clear harm was supposedly made. But the argument of reparations for colonialism itself, I mean, it's, it's a non-starter as a, as a moral question, but it's also, I think, a non-starter as a practical question. Now, if, as we start to wrap up, first of all, is, um, is colonialism worth reclaiming? Um, what, what, is, what are the aspects of it that could be applied if understood properly in the world today? Well, um, colonialism happens whether we like it or not in the sense that um, dysfunctional governments have their governance capacities um, taken over by external actors. Um, often it's uh, an IMF loan with conditions or it's a World Bank loan with conditions about governance. You'd call that colonialism of a kind? It's, it's not colonialism, but it's external governance. Um, and it, it draws much on colonial experiences in terms of how you can enhance indigenous capacity by keeping some form of gatekeeping or tutelary role on the outside, right? But that's how colonialism was trying to develop self-government, right? Which is, you know, as much 
indigenous native government as possible, creating structures, but allowing the governor to veto acts, right? Allowing the governor to appoint the district commissioner. I mean, that's, mm. that was the sort of what Lugard called the dual mandate, right? And sort of our mandate to the local government and the local government's mandate to its people. And that's how we're going to operate. No, I don't like to use the word colonialism for, for that type of external governance, because that's really just external governance, right? Now, there are, there are opportunities for actual colonialism. I mean, um, Paul Romer, who was the World Bank uh, official economist, right, a University of Chicago professor, proposed this idea of a charter city, right, to take a piece of land in one of these countries, uh, lease it from the government for a dollar a year, right, and put it under the formal rule of an external power, right? So a charter city would be kind of like what Hong Kong was, right? It's right. basically a leased piece of land that is put under the sovereignty of a Western government for a fixed amount of time, right? During which its laws and its rule apply there. Mm. It's allowed to trade, people are allowed to migrate, right? And what it does is it creates this, this little kind of dynamo of economic success right. along the coast or in the territory that eventually can be handed back. I mean, Romer says that Hong Kong itself, given the number of people it positively affected in China mm. because of its demonstration effects, because of how the Chinese learned from it, can almost single-handedly be used to justify British colonialism just by the numbers, right? Because if it's responsible for China's economic boom, then it's a pretty big mm. data point. Um, so, so ideas like that. Now, it's tough to bring in the white man, mainly because the white man doesn't want to be there right? Because right. of the opposition. But we do see, for example, non-white countries going in. So the South Koreans have created essentially a small colony in Bangladesh. Uh, it's basically an industrial zone. It's run by the Korean Development Authority. It's a walled city. Um, it's got factories. It's got schools. It's got its own government. Um, it's basically mm -hmm. a little Korean colony in Bangladesh. Nobody notices it because they're all like, brown and yellow, and aren't they all just the same? And, and who cares about the Koreans colonizing Bangladesh? I think it's great. It's a, it's a model. You've also seen some uh, behavior like that in Yemen, in the north end of Yemen, where the Qataris and mm. the Saudis and the Turks have basically created a, a, a colony, a colony that's externally run. I think that that's a great model to follow because the Yemenis can't stand up their own government. This is all kind of beyond the New York Times horizon mm. of interest because, you know, they're all brown and black people and there's no white man with a pith hat on to decry. So, but it's actually working quite well. And I think that type of colonialism has a lot of potential. Well, that premise, what about uh, Chinese colonialism in Africa today? Would you call that colonialism? It's not, it's not even external governance for the most part because the Chinese... Um, unlike the South Koreans, don't actually have a governance model that they can share. So the Chinese invest a lot. Yeah, they create company towns. Mm -hmm. They provide infrastructure, but they're not, they're not doing governance. What's it, the difference in a, 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 a town that you buy up and run? And, uh... Well, because, because the Chinese still are not um, bringing in their own administrators. They're not setting up their own you know, special zone laws the way that, say, the Koreans did in Bangladesh. I mean, they're still relying on local police they're still using local laws. I mean, they're not really trying to govern beyond just running their enterprises. Now, yeah, those enterprises are big, sprawling institutions, but um, but they're still just like one company operation. So I don't think I don't see the Chinese doing. It. The Chinese are smart enough to know that they can't do that, right? That they they can't govern other peoples. And do you think would they not want to? Or I don't think they want to. 
They, they want their money. They want their investment. They want their leverage over those governments in terms of the economic leverage. But I, I don't think they see themselves as having uh, an interest even in spreading their governance model to other parts of the world. Indeed, their whole discourse is to each his own. It's interesting that I mean, today when we talk about colonialism, uh, countries like America, Israel and others are sort of, the, the term is used sometimes of them as a, a sort of smear or a slander. Um, even as, and there's, there's, there's nothing that America is doing that is colonial by the terms that you've just laid out, yet for some reason it is still seen, or it is seen today as something that only, as you say, white people would be guilty of or could be guilty of. Is that true? Yeah, it's trying to, it's trying to backcast the word to say any settlement or expansion of one's territory makes you colonial. So if that's mm. the case, virtually all of the Native American tribes are colonial as well. I mean, all mm. of the lands claimed by the Cherokee are colonial takings yeah. from other tribes. Uh, the Hawaiians who claim indigeneity in Hawaii arose from colonial processes in the Hawaiian Islands and the South Pacific. So we're all colonial. So it's just a statement of the obvious, mm. right? And and to say that um, a place like Puerto Rico is is colonial, well, of course, the Puerto Ricans, you know, have never demanded independence, right? I mean, the independence movement is a flop in Puerto Rico for reasons that they know well, right? Because it would be a disaster. I mean, they benefit from that connection. The little bits of colonies left around the world, the French pieces, the British pieces, right? They have a referendum. There's a place that's related, you know, the, the Norfolk Islands off New Zealand. I mean, they have a referendum. They never achieve a necessary majority because these places know how much they benefit from that colonial connection. Now, as we wrap up, um, I come back to where we started, the, the outrage, the attempted cancellations of you and a few other academics who actually investigate research in these areas without just coming to what seem to be the preordained conclusions you're meant to come to. Um, and just to return to that, as I see it, the criticisms that have come towards you, the, the criticisms that have come to others in the same area, it's almost as if there's an area of the past on this occasion, colonialism, but there are others as well, that's effectively behind crime scene tape. And you're not meant to go there. And as I see it, the reason that people don't want you to go there is because they somehow think that if you do, we're going to do it again. You heard that a certain amount in recent years in Britain. There were people who claimed that the Brexit vote was just the beginning of a new era of, of British empire building and no member of the British government has at all expressed an interest in going and taking over other parts of the world in the last six years, very far from it. They seem to be wanting to uh, govern their own state as well or badly as they can. But that seems to be a, a, a motif that, that has been emerging. Don't deal with this stuff. Don't even weigh up the pros and cons of colonialism because the moment you were to talk about the pros, We'll, we'll just be off again. Do you agree? Yeah, and I think it's, it's even bigger than that. I mean, it, it's, it's true that they don't want to legitimate the idea of Western control or rule over any part of the world, even if peoples in other parts of the world would, would line up to be ruled by Western countries. Uh, I think that's true, by the way. Separate issue. But I think there's a bigger issue here, and it's, it's part of what your book, The War on the West, is about, which is that colonialism is seen as a kind of unambiguous bad 
that can be chalked up on the negative side of Western society and constantly used to bash it whenever it claims any right. And part of it's a response to the fact that as, as, the, as the world progresses, the West is getting stronger, in my view. It is getting stronger. It is getting more dominant. It is getting more attractive. Uh, the rivals are falling by the wayside. Um, the Chinese model is flat. The Russian model is over. The Brazilian model is long dead. I mean, so I think there is this kind of resentment about the success of the West. And colonialism has become this kind of quiver of arrows that say, whenever you talk about the West, right, let's not forget colonialism. And the requirement there is that that debate be not available for discussion, right? That that's just an unambiguous bad. And you're supposed to bow your head and say, yes, you're right. That's a bad part of it, right? So they hate the idea that this this, you know, box, this Pandora's box of debate could be opened because it weakens what to them is one of their key kind of charges in opposition to the rise of the West. Well, Professor Bruce Gilley, thank you very much. We've covered an enormous amount of terrain, but that was absolutely fascinating and has certainly given us a new view on an old question of colonialism. Thank you. Thank you.